0: Hello, I'm Aya Nance, IIISS Senior Fellow for Chinese Security and Defense Policy and host of the WWS Sound Strategic Podcast. It's been nearly one year since Russia launched its war of aggression against Ukraine, and today I'll be speaking with three WWS experts on the geopolitical, economic, and military takeaways from the past 12 months. We'll be discussing what geopolitical impacts have surprised us the most, whether economic sanctions are having the intended impact and which countries are helping Russia to adapt to them, and what lessons we shouldn't be drawing from the war in Ukraine. Looking ahead, our experts will share what to watch out for in 2023 and give their views on whether an end to the war is likely this year from their respective angles of analysis. Joining me today are Dr. Nigel Gold Davis, Editor of Strategic Survey and Senior Fellow for Russia and Eurasia at the WS. Dr. Maria Shagina, the Diamond Brown Senior Fellow for Economic Sanctions, Standards, and Strategy at the WWS, and Franz Stefan Gatti, Senior Fellow for Cyberpower and Future Conflict. Nigel, Maria, Franz, welcome to the show. So, Nigel, what have been the major geopolitical surprises so far?
1: So, Russia's invasion of Ukraine was a tectonic moment in world politics, and tectonic shocks always produce surprises. They change the landscape in unpredictable ways, and uh, we've seen that in this case too. And there are, I would say, three things that stand out that are new and significant and that we couldn't have assumed would happen as a consequence of the invasion. The first is the extent to which it has united the West emphatically, and as the West has remained united, it has also escalated its positions in various ways. I think it's worth emphasizing just how historically strong this sense of common purpose has been because we regularly hear these concerns and it's it's right and understandable that people should express them that uh, cracks may be appearing in the coalition this state or that may be wobbling in its uh, commitment to support Ukraine but I think the larger picture is how firm it has been and greater than at any time even during the darkest periods of the Cold War This is a consistency of purpose across all Western states, except Hungary, it has to be said, across Western societies. There's no significant body of organized opinion. There's no political party. There's no major movement that is saying, look, the risks and costs of supporting Ukraine and resisting Russia are too great. We have to think about this calculus in different ways. We have to uh, understand uh, Russia's legitimate concerns. Yes, are individual voices saying that, but nothing that's politically salient. And thirdly, and I think most remarkably, uh, we've seen significant parts of the Western private sector not merely comply with sanctions, because they have to, because it's the law, but voluntarily amplify their effects. So states, society, and companies as well. And that's remained in force for a year now, and not merely remained in force, but escalated in important ways. So we've seen a steady strengthening of the forms of practical military support and other forms of support being provided to Ukraine, and also escalations in the severity of sanctions applied against Russia, and Maria will, I'm sure, want to say more about that. We've seen escalation in respect of the longer-term institutional changes Uh, that this is bringing about in the West's collective purpose. So it's partly a matter of the enlargement of NATO, of course, to include Sweden and Finland, the EU candidacy of Ukraine that's been accepted as well. And uh, finally, the West is sort of firing up engines now of claims and demands on Russia that will mean that any end to the war is likely to be much more onerous on Russia than simply a matter of deciding where lines are drawn on territory. Uh, And they include the prosecution of war crimes, uh, the demand for the return of adaptees. Uh, Ukrainian citizens have been forcibly uh, removed and taken into, dispersed across Russia, including thousands of children actually, and the West is properly sort of concerning itself with that as well. And finally the demand for reparations and accounting of the war damage that Russia is inflicting and moves to try now to uh, to bring Russian assets to be used to help fund the costs of reconstruction. So that's the first big issue, the unity and escalation of the West. The second, in a sense the, the mirror image of that, is the weaknesses of Russian power that this invasion has laid bare. And that's not only a matter of of its military failure in the field, significant though that is. We've seen across a range of domains of power, the failures of Russia. For example, the the fact that again really no one who who matters in any significant degree accepts the Russian view, the Russian narrative of this war. Public opinion has proven remarkably immune to uh, Russia's attempts to, to, to salt our information space with uh, with a malign interpretation of things. Cyberpower as well, Russian cyber power, much feared before this war, has been so far a dog that hasn't barked. And also, I'd argue, and again, Maria will want to say more about this, that Russia's economic power has proven much less significant than many people feared. The West has now got through the winter with none of the dire predictions about the catastrophic consequences of higher energy prices being made manifest—that's a, a matter of Western resilience, but also again the limitations of Russians' power to try to to influence us. And one way of summarizing all of this together is to to pose the question, and I think it needs to be thought about: To what extent now is Russia legitimately to be considered a great power, in the sense of a country that can achieve significant, desirable effects? beyond its borders. Looking in the round and across these domains of power, it seems to me increasingly difficult to to think of Russia as a great power, properly so-called anymore.
0: A very comprehensive answer. And I was wondering whether we can extend that a little bit to talk about Putin's personal power as a politician and as a leader in Russia. Is there anything that you've seen over the last year that suggests that there is potentially a weakening of his power or a change in the domestic political situation in Russia that would lead to a different course for this
1: war to take. In terms of Putin's relationship to the rest of the political system within Russia, this war has, if anything, accelerated the trends that were discernible before the invasion, which is to say the degree of his personalistic power has intensified. Russia and before that the Soviet Union, typically been more or less authoritarian, but it's not since 1953, I would say, the death of Stalin, the 70th anniversary of that just coming up, that Russia has been ruled in as personalistic and dictatorial way as it is now, which is to say the individual leader, not some larger collective body like a Politburo, absolutely dominates the system. But if we're asking a question about power in terms of the ability to achieve, again, desired outcomes, then I think the the, the picture is much more mixed. This war is broadly unpopular among most of the people that sort of matter in the system, the, the elites. Most of them are quietly unhappy and I think would much rather the war came to a quick end. Most of them are complying, however anxiously, But that doesn't mean they're doing things with any great enthusiasm. The system is not, in most respects, operating in an effective way. There is visible infighting between different elements, especially among those who wield instruments of force. So the Russian, former Russian military, the security services, Wagner group, the Chechen militias and so on. I wouldn't take that as a sign of the the weakening of Putin's power. I think ultimately he's the arbiter of how these differences and these mutual recriminations play out. He's very much in control, but again, it's personalistic power wielded to no great effect at this point.
0: Maybe to touch on a, a topic that was discussed quite extensively at the start of the conflict, Almost a year ago, it felt as if we might be closer to the use of a tactical nuclear weapon uh, in a conflict than we have potentially been in decades. So what is the risk now looking forward, having seen this play out over the last uh, year of that not having been the case? um, What is the risk of Putin potentially using, leveraging this threat again in the future? And is that something that we need to be concerned about? Or was that just Putin to a large extent bluffing to put it in simple terms?
1: So when Putin announced the invasion on the 24th of February last year he made implicit but very clear reference to the threat of Russian nuclear power. He's done that many times since and another of the remarkable aspects of the West's response is that these threats and growls have had progressively less effect on Western resolve and a threat of this magnitude such that the more you use it the less credible it sounds and indeed on one occasion Putin rather plaintively added the words this is not a bluff I think there's a sense at this point that the the threat is discounted that doesn't mean it should never be taken seriously and I judge it's uh, the risk of it to remain low in particular for two reasons one is that Putin I believe still thinks although wrongly, that he can win this war by the means currently at his disposal. And while he holds that belief, then he will not feel he has to resort to nuclear weapons. The second reason is that the risks to him of doing so are very great indeed, and that has been conveyed to him publicly and privately more than once by Western interlocutors and when the the prospect of uh, Russian nuclear use arises uh, there are some who look only at the threat that poses to the West uh, but equally it's a threat to Russia because if that threat was ever made good then the costs that Russia would suffer as a consequence uh, would be very significant and Putin understands that and those around him do as well. So it may be that if Russia continues to lose the war, the probability uh, that he might seriously contemplate using his weapons will rise, but at this point I would judge it to remain very low.
0: So Maria, Nigel mentioned Russia's economic power and of course the unity in the West for the imposition of sanctions against Russia for its invasion in Ukraine. What impact did these sanctions have on the Russian economy in 2022?
2: We have to admit that the sanctions uh, had lesser impact than expected. On the surface, Russian economy is doing well, and that's where the Kremlin wants to focus you on. Everything is going fine. The GDP has not collapsed. Recent IMF report uh, has even predicted the growth for the next year. But last year, Russian GDP contracted only by 2.3%, which is rather modest. And it's a stark contrast to these doom and gloom scenarios that we had at the early months of the war, predicting a contraction of minus 15 or even minus 20%. Unemployment and inflation is manageably low, although we have to say that not all of the statistics that Russia publishes has been taken at the face value. The ruble has rebounded. The financial system has stabilized. We haven't seen any bank runs. And again, this is the, the picture Russia wants you to, to focus on, that everything is going according to plan. Our economy is resilient enough to face the sanctions of so-called massive consequences. But the thing with sanctions is it's hard to capture it in one figure, in particularly on the macroeconomic level. The macroeconomic indicators don't always reveal that the true picture they're hidden uh, in between different sectors or within companies, and they have a cumulative effect that unfolds over the long-term strategy. There are early signs already that sanctions are gradually impacting the Russian economy, starting geographically from the periphery. And again, it's an indication that sanctions is a slow-burning tool that will eat away Russia's economic growth and will constrain the Kremlin's fiscal policy options. So if we unpack why Russia did better than expected, in my opinion, it comes down to two factors. On the one hand, this rather skillful and swift response from Russian technocrats. Since 2014, they had a playbook how to counteract Western sanctions. Not everything was predicted in that playbook, but they had a solid basis how to respond quickly to financial sanctions, expert controls, measures. So the Central Bank of Russia was effective in its immediate response to tame the capital outflows with aggressive capital and currency controls. And it also hiked interest rates, also obligated main exporters of the country to convert all revenue to rubles. The second factor that was crucial to understand the effectiveness of sanctions is the lack or delay with the Europe decision to target Russia where it matters, and that's the energy sector. The West has immobilized around $300 billion in foreign assets, but it has allowed Russia to export hydrocarbons at record high prices. So it basically provided Russia a financial lifeline, which in fact contradicted the objective of sanctions, which is to erode Russia's ability to fund the war. So if we look at the statistics, Since the start of the war, the EU purchased Russian oil, gas and coal for more than 140 billion euros. And that's quite a lot. So Russia has managed to partially rebuild its fortress economy. Last year, the country has recorded one of the highest current account surpluses, reaching over $250 billion, almost equivalent to what was frozen in the central bank. And that's unfortunately the, the year 2022. The year 2023 will be different because it comes in with measures which matter, is EU's oil embargo and the price caps.
0: And what do you expect the impact of the EU's oil embargo and the price caps to be in 2023? What are you looking for over the next year in these two issues?
2: In 2023, Russia will no longer enjoy that windfall revenue that it received last year. With the embargo, roughly 40% of oil and gas uh, exports will be under sanctions. We're already seeing the early impact of the oil embargo. Since December 2022, Russia's crude oil revenue dropped by 32%, costing the Kremlin around 160 million uh, euros per day. With the embargo on refined products, that number will increase to 260 million uh, euros per day. In January, Russia's own Minister of Finance reported the, the largest uh, single-month deficit on record since at least 1998, and that amounted to $25 billion dollars. Again, in January, the the ministry was rather honest with its statistics, and it said that oil and gas revenue fell by more than 46%. So again, it's showing that the Russian budget will be strained because it lacks that cash cow that oil and gas was before. It's hard to diversify it to other countries. In terms of volume, it's manageable. Altogether, China, India and Turkey did compensate the loss of the European market, but not in price. And this is where it matters, because Russian oil was traded at around 40% discount. And hence, we are seeing the difficulty for the Russian budget to balance mounting military spending and also increasing social expenditure. So the Russian budget was... Designed uh, at around $70 per barrel. That's no longer the reality for the Russian Euros. Hence, in year 2023-2024, the government will face a budget deficit between 4.5-6.5%. The government is already focusing on things which matter. Again, we're seeing the the challenge what to balance and what to prioritize. Kremlin has already canceled a non-war expenditure on infrastructure, education, healthcare. It has also increased taxes on state-owned companies that have profited in last year, such as fertilizer companies, or Gazprom uh, had paid a massive tax uh, to the government. So we're seeing that Russia is turning its economy to mobilize towards the war effort. Defense companies also work in larger shifts, but it has drained in its macro buffers. It has uh, depleted 25% of its National wearable Fund, which is a country's rainy day fund. It's selling quite uh, on record uh, Chinese yuan, which is uh, left as part of foreign reserves. Uh, And it's also selling its domestic bonds, which don't have really... Uh, appetite from foreign investors. It's not to say that the Russian economy will collapse, which was never the intent of sanctions, but it's making it hard for Russia to to balance that budget and ultimately to fund the war. Can we
0: maybe, looking back at 2022, speak a little bit about how Russia was able to adapt to some of the consequences of the sanctions placed upon it, in particular in terms of its relationship with China, Iran and the Middle East?
2: Absolutely. The role of third countries is crucial when it comes to assessing sanctions. So on one hand, we have design of sanctions, which kicks in and starts the process. Then it targets adaptation, how the target adapts to this external pressure. And finally, is the role of third countries. So here, Russia has... Try to, to double down on its super substitution domestically, has tried to create new supply chains, but that's not really working because Russia technologically has been already less advanced. So it's trying to pivot to third countries, to two groups of third countries. On the one hand, we're seeing it's pivoting to sanctions pariahs, such as Iran and North Korea. Iran is famously now procuring drones for Russia and has even established a new facility in Russia. North Korea is providing missiles or even shipping uniforms to the Russian army. The key countries I would argue to watch here is what is called in academic literature Black Knights. Those are the the countries that didn't join the sanctions regime, and they navigate between these two worlds. And if we look at the, the dark fleet, the, the oil embargo, Russia is trying to, to adapt in the way that Iran did, is trying to tap towards a shadow fleet. That usually comes with help of third countries like China. So China has um, helped to to establish companies, uh, shell companies in Hong Kong, for example, to purchase some of them. The same is happening uh, in the Middle East, uh, that the United Arab Emirates are being um, featured rather pronouncedly in this um, cat and mouse game. Turkey is the one to watch as well. We've seen that the number of Transactions, re-exports of goods, uh, such as dishwasher or washing machines, have been on record high from Turkey. And if we compare the numbers before the war, that history is not there. So if we zoom in a little bit on China, everyone was hoping that China would come in and help Russia immediately, but that's not the case. China took a wait-and-see approach to evaluate the complexity of sanctions, the scope of sanctions, and to to exploit maybe the the weak spots in, in the regime. So China became a leader in areas that were not directly sanctioned. For example, some of the equipment or spare parts for Russian companies due to the fact that so many Western companies left the country China has, again, capitalized on Russia's isolation, purchasing Russian oil, gas, and coal, but they didn't really rush in to to acquire stranded uh, Western assets. It's very reluctant to provide LNG technology to Russia's Arctic projects because they are now targeted by EU sanctions. The next area I think is very key here is chips and semiconductors. So for a while, we heard from the Biden administration that there has been no systemic sanctions violation when it comes to China. And I think that was the case uh, up till recently, but now we're seeing that more evidence is resurfacing towards China's role in that. China and Hong Kong are these two entities through which Re-export to Russia is happening quite on drastic scale, again, with the help of shell companies or by obfuscating the ultimate destination, the ultimate end user. And here, this military-civil fusion is happening not just in China, but in Russia itself, companies like Rosatom nuclear company he's allegedly procured some of the sanction tech. Those are the countries, the third countries to watch uh, how much they can actually help Russia to procure stuff that's already under sanction and that will have direct impact on the battlefield.
0: So friends, turning to the military dynamics, looking back over the last year of war in Ukraine, what have we learned about modern warfare that perhaps we had underestimated or overestimated before?
3: Well, I guess one of the main lessons from this conflict so far, and in a way it sort of reinforces some of the things that we've been analyzing prior to the outbreak of hostilities on February 24th, is um, the dominant character of attrition in state-on-state warfare. That is really this idea that it's not so much about maneuver, it's not so much about a revolution in military affairs enabled by emerging technological capabilities, but rather that it is really at the end of the day about disproportionately affecting more losses on your opponent in terms of man and material than your own side is uh, sustaining. And I think this is a key takeaway from this conflict, the importance of attrition for any future conflict. And I think out of that flow, a couple of consequences uh, for the defense industry, not just in Europe, but also in the United States, in the entire West the way we structure our forces, our armed forces in Europe and the United States, what kind of technological capabilities we would like to invest in in the future. And there really the trade-off is between legacy platforms, we need artillery, we need Self propelled howitzers, unguided munitions, it seems, main battle tanks are not obsolete, and then also integrated and paired with uh, emerging technological capabilities, whether it's uncrewed platforms in all shapes and forms, ground based, air based, but also cyber capabilities. And I think this integration question will be very important in, in future.
0: So having seen the performance of Ukraine and, and Russia's armed forces over the last year um, and also what NATO's role has been, what is your assessment of the performances so far and also what has worked, what hasn't worked?
3: When it comes to NATO, of course, the big takeaway and something that I at least have not would not have been able to guess prior to the start of the war was NATO's support or Western support for Ukraine on a scale that is really quite unprecedented in NATO's history as an institution itself, right? There were other similar examples where other Western countries, such as the United States, have supplied a partner with massive military aid during a conflict, such as during the 1973 war between Israel and various Arab states. At the end of the day, NATO's role is really pivotal in this conflict in providing ISR data, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance uh, data that is really used for precision strikes on the Ukrainian side. also, of course, um, the lifeline of Ukraine remains Western military support, munition flows of all kinds and uh, shapes that are really important to sustain this war of attrition for the Ukrainians against the Russians, and then also other military aid, such as main battle tanks, artillery. And I think I need to emphasize again that this is primarily an artillery war fought in Ukraine, and it's really about firepower and very conventional firepower, unguided munitions that are doing the most damage. It's not so much about drones. It's not so much about all these other capabilities. They're enabling capabilities and are supposed to help essentially with this artillery war, but. At the bottom of it it is an artillery war and i think we should be careful here also not to take too many lessons away from this conflict because it should be unsurprising that this is an artillery war or dominated by ground-based fires because both the ukrainian armed forces and the russian armed forces are essentially fire-based militaries or ground-based fires militaries that is they're really artillery dominant and really the entire force structure is built around artillery uh, batteries battalions brigades and so forth
0: No, I take that point and I recall that you've also written an article about the wrong lessons to take away from the war as well, which was a really
3: interesting piece. That's right. And I think there are plenty of wrong lessons to be taken away from this conflict, and we should be extremely careful about drawing broad conclusions because, of course, every war is different. We need to take into account that we're really operating in the fog of war. Our, um, The founder of our company, our institute, um, has once written about the fog of peace. That is, this idea that we don't really know what's happening. Prior to the outbreak of a conflict, the fog of peace is sort of preventing us from really trying to ascertain the contours of a future of the character of future conflict. And then only once, once we're getting closer, once the conflict breaks out, we're able to discern some of the lessons, but it's still really murky. And I think that's something we have to keep in mind, whether that's really the role of emerging technologies, cyber, that's a domain we know very little about. The air domain is also something That we can't really gauge at from unmanned open source intelligence. There are also other lessons, I think, that we are at the beginning, at least, through some you know, the wrong conclusions from, for example, the role of UAVs and to what degree some of those platforms, some of those armed drones, such as the TB2 was actually effective against integrated Russian air and defense systems, the role of electronic warfare. I think Russian electronic warfare capabilities were also fairly underestimated at the beginning of the conflict. And I think a larger point is also what we really learned is the importance of training it's the importance of good military doctrine it's the importance of morale it's a lot of the intangible factors that are often not factored in in our analysis morale for example leadership but then of course also the stuff that's not really that interesting to a lot of us uh, logistics for example my big lesson from this conflict is for example that i've completely underestimated the ability of the russian armed forces to really learn or at least train according to what they were publicizing during their reforms in uh, the 2000s, and then really very strongly post-2008 after the Georgia-Russia war. And I thought that the armed forces of Russia actually had adapted and changed their training doctrine. And it turns out that this has not been the case. So this probably has been one of the biggest surprises for me in this conflict so far. And out of that really flowed a lot of the mistakes that were made at the beginning of the war in addition to of course a really bad plan that was badly executed it wasn't just training and the other stuff that was really working but it's also obviously a bad plan that led to a lot of the initial military setbacks by the russians but they have adapted i think i should also say in some ways so i think there is a certain ability to adapt within the russian armed forces that is perhaps sometimes underestimated but long story short i think you know we need to be extra careful at this stage to even try to draw any lessons from this conflict
0: You spoke to lessons being drawn from this conflict, but of course, other European countries are also looking at what lessons they can indeed draw from this and whether or not there needs to be some sort of reform of European militaries on the continent You've written about the discussions around conscription that are taking place in a number of European capitals at the moment and why that wouldn't be as effective as reforming reserve systems. Can you maybe expand on what other European countries should be taking away from this at this point in time?
3: The two big lessons here are first scalability. We've for 20 years fought wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, counterinsurgency campaigns where we actually required very little forces to conduct these kinds of operations. What we have missed over the last two decades, similar to the Russian armed forces, is just exercising training at scale. And I'm talking about large-scale military combined arms operations. Combined arms operations is really the Champions League, so to speak, of military discipline or military performance. It's the Formula One. If you're good at conducting combined arms operations, you have a good military. That's the bottom line. And this is also the direction where future conflict is heading. Combined arms operations is uh, the foundational element um, for joint all domain operations, which is essentially going to become doctrine, not just in the United States but across NATO, and it's essential that you really are able to perform or at least operate and be able to execute combined arms maneuver and operations. So I think scalability plus combined arms operations is something that we've been missing uh, over the last two decades. How we address this is, for example, by reinstituting larger-scale military exercises. Brigade-level exercises in most NATO countries are really the exception, not so much the rule. And there's virtually nothing happening at, for example, higher levels, the division level or the core level where it's very often just tabletop exercises, command post exercises where the presence of troops is simulated, but never actually done in the field. And I think this really prevents us from trying to figure out how to deal with friction. Friction, this idea introduced by Clausewitz already in the 18th century, this idea that there's uncertainty essentially in your military operations, and there's always a certain element of unpredictability in your military operations. And I think once you learn how to deal with uh, friction, you can also better learn to improvise and so forth. So I think scalability, combined arms operations, these are the two major lessons that that I take away um, from this conflict. The other lesson also is... Again, that, and you mentioned that I wrote about the reserve system, is just attrition and the massive loss of men and material in any future state-on-state war. How we regenerate our forces or how we reconstitute our forces is going to be a major question that we need to answer and that we need to answer fast within NATO in the West overall, because one thing we have seen in the war in Ukraine is that the best units, And our most valuable assets are disproportionately getting affected by attrition in the early stages of war. And this is really euphemistic language for saying that probably the best people and the best material, they're going to get destroyed, killed, wounded, put out of action right at the beginning of a conflict or relatively soon. So we need to have a strategy in place. How can we really continue a fight or a future, for example, great power war? where attrition is really the dominant character and where we need to replenish our um, losses fairly quickly. So that's why I said we need to have a discussion, not so much about uh, conscription or reinstituting conscription in Europe, but really a discussion about how do we reform the reserves? Because the reserves, just like um, the rest of our force structure, has really been tailored towards type of conflict that we're likely not going to be fighting over the next couple of years again. That is a counterinsurgency campaign with fairly limited troops and fairly small-scale tactical operations.
0: So, Nigel, what trends are you looking at that will shape the war over the next year that you're going to be looking at most closely?
1: So this is a war that's being fought on two fronts. One is by military means on the ground in Ukraine, and the other is on the home fronts of all the participants, and those participants include Western countries, because they are providing support for Ukraine and imposing sanctions on Russia. So I'll be looking at the contest of endurance and resilience that's been conducted on those home fronts. So on the one side, how this war and its growing military and economic difficulties will impose strains on domestic cohesion, and on what? remains, which I think is relatively little now, of what once we might have called the social contract between Putin and the population. This is an unprecedented shock for the system. Putin did not expect to be fighting a war a year after his invasion. He thought it would be over very quickly. So he's been adapting his system and trying to ensure that the adverse consequences of the war don't produce political challenges at home. And on the other side, of course, I'll be looking to see how effectively the West maintains what I've described as is really historic and remarkable degree of cohesion and unity and any potential challenges in any significant states that emerge to threaten that. So the contest, the battle of wills on the home front.
0: And what are the prospects for an end to the war within the next year from your perspective?
1: The war will only end when both combatants reach the conclusion that it better serves their long-term interests to end the fighting than to continue fighting. At this point, I think that prospect is remote indeed. I see no appetite on either side for that. In the case of Ukraine, on the contrary, the sacrifices it has suffered so far have only instilled will to continue until it has regained its territory. On the Russian side, Putin is psychologically all in on this and it would take a a comprehensive military defeat or in one way or another the removal of Putin from power to change that on the Russian side. But I will just add in, in my view that if for whatever reason Putin were to leave, either for physiological reasons or for political reasons, it's more likely than not that the war would end fairly quickly.
0: Thanks, Nigel. Maria, what trends shaping the war will you
2: be following most
0: closely over the next year?
2: So the trends that are also related to sanctions, in my opinion, the the two things that I would focus on is again sanctions circumvention tactics. How successful Russia will be with them? It's not a coincidence that since the beginning of this year, the EU has established a new position, a special envoy on sanctions, the person who will monitor stringent enforcement in different EU countries. And we have to say that EU has many national governments who have to level the playing field there, but also transatlantically that we have certain cohesion there. On the EU oil embargo, it's important to watch Russia's successes in to tap in this dark fleet. It's not limitless. Russia still competes with Iran and Venezuela for these oil tankers. But how much they can acquire will also predetermine how successful EU's oil embargo and the price cap will be. And these are the main measure right now that have been eating away the, the Russian revenues. The second aspect here, not necessarily war-related, but will certainly have implications for the war, is the developments about establishing the legal framework for the confiscation of assets. We're seeing tectonic shifts happening in certain countries. Canada has already has the the mechanism to confiscate those assets as part of its sanctions legislation. We heard that Estonia will push for a mechanism to be implemented on the EU level. And recently, uh, a UK MP has pushed for a similar legislation to be adopted in parliament that will target not just Russian private assets of oligarchs or officials but also state assets and this is I think will be very important for Ukraine to hear that because that's a sizable number we're talking about.
0: And from your perspective what are the prospects for an end to the war within the next year?
2: I think what we talked about in our last episode on this topic, the absence of the end game with sanctions and with the war, in my opinion, it started to weigh in on the course of the war because we're talking about something that is not clearly defined Russia's strategic failure. Different interpretations from Berlin, Paris, or Washington, or London will impact how we see that. So we're seeing that increase in balancing between fears of escalation, some of it nuclear escalation, as Nigel pointed out, maybe exaggerated, maybe not, but it's there. And the fear of not helping Ukraine too much. So it's this muddled space that we're in and how much of that will be the predetermining factor where we we end. So we're seeing drastic shifts in terms of our conversation on weapons, tanks, or fighter jets, But ultimately, this will also have the political consequences for Zelensky, um, president of Ukraine, how to reach a negotiated settlement. Unfortunately, there is no clear strategy for Russia's failure. Hence, Ukraine will have to concede to some concessions, territorially, most of it.
0: So, Franz, what trends shaping the war will you be following most closely over the next year?
3: First of all, the lifeline of Ukraine remains Western military support. So I will be very carefully following what kind of weapon systems are actually going to flow into Ukraine. At what point can the Ukrainians really form, for example, those tank battalions, those mechanized formations that they need for offensive operations, and that will be primarily composed of Western military hardware, Western self-propelled howitzers, Western air defense systems, Western main battle tanks. The other aspect, of course, will be to what degree the Russian armed forces will be able to adapt at the tactical and operational level. The Russian armed forces have been able to adapt to a certain degree, but it's been not very successful. And I think both sides have not exhausted their offensive potential. But we're really moving, I think, in a direction where both sides are not capable of conducting major strategic ground offensive, at least um, in the near term, in my opinion. I think both sides have at this stage exhausted a lot of their offensive uh, capability, but in the long run, as long as Western support is steady and as long as we keep on delivering, I think Ukraine can remain in the field with its armed forces. And also at some point in the medium term, I would say the initiative again, and perhaps even be able to conduct a sustainable strategic counteroffensive At this stage though, right now, I don't really see this happening, both sides are fighting it out. I would pay very careful attention to what degree both the Ukrainians and the Russians over the next year will be able to marshal their offensive capabilities to conduct strategic ground offensive. I remain skeptical that they would be able to do that in the near term, in my opinion.
0: And in your opinion, what are the prospects for an end to the war within the
3: next year? From a military perspective, I don't see a very fast ending of this conflict anytime soon, at least not within the first six months of this year, 2023. Neither side is going to run out of ammunition. Neither side is going to run out of manpower. Western support seems to be steady and um, the Russians Also, seem to be willing to endure these casualties and continue this conflict from a pure military perspective. Both sides still have not exhausted all their military options, so I feel that this conflict will drag on for a while. But of course, every single conflict ultimately is an extension of the political dimension or the political dynamics between these two countries, and of course, um, a political solution or at least like a political impetus could end this conflict sooner than the military reality is reflecting the current state of affairs in Ukraine.
0: Nigel, Maria and friends, thank you for joining me today and sharing your insights. And thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode more in-depth analysis, visit the IIWS website and follow the IIWS on Twitter and LinkedIn. To read the latest from Franz, Maria, and Nigel, take a look at our show notes for this episode. And don't forget to follow, rate, and subscribe to Sound Strategic wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts to keep up to date with the latest episodes. Thank you and see you next time.